He was tall and thin and pale, black-bearded, dressed in a long coat and a broad-brimmed hat. The doctors thought he wouldn't live very long. He was told that after a year in the ministry he'd be finished. He hovered on the edge of death for 83 years and established one of the greatest of modern Christian movements. But 1944, we find him working for a pawn shop. That year he's converted and so he goes to the owner of the shop and says, I can't work for you on Sunday. The pawn shop owner says, you'll either work for me or you'll starve. And Bill said, well, I'll starve. And he left. But the pawn shop owner found he couldn't work without him. So he called him back. He had two hours off in the week and in those two hours he preached Christ on the streets. And one day a businessman by the name of Rabbits heard him. He said, you've got to leave your business. You've got to preach all the time. Bill said, I, I can't. I have to have the money. He said, I'll pay you away. How much will it take you to live? Twelve shillings a week, said Bill. No, you can't live on twelve shillings. I'll give you twenty. I want you to come to my home tomorrow night. I've got some people coming along. So Bill went and met a woman that was smarter than he was, a better speaker than he was, and who in many ways would be more influential than he was. Her name was Catherine Mumford. Sick all her life. Died about a quarter of a century before her husband her only regret that she wasn't able to nurse him in his last illness. He died of breast cancer. Rabbits asked Bill if he would repeat his poem against alcohol. And so before a fashionable group in Rabbit's home, Bill recited the poem and immediately a moderate drinker began to defend himself. And Catherine came out and overwhelmed this poor man with reasons why his logic wouldn't stand up. It wasn't long before Catherine and Bill were married. He became a very successful evangelist, winning 1,700 people in about three months. But he aroused antagonism, envy in his church leaders. And so they decided they would chain him down. He was given about the worst circuit in the land and told he wasn't to leave it. He pled again and again, make me an evangelist, I want to be an evangelist, take me out of this restricted area of service. They said, we'll discuss it at the General Conference. So in the year 1861, all the women were up in the balcony. You could never hear a sound from up there. No one had ever uttered a peep or muttered from the balcony. And downstairs were the men, all the ministers and the General Conference leaders. And the decision was made. William Booth, you are to remain in the parish that's been appointed to you. Your request to be an evangelist is turned down. And a little woman who'd been sick all her life, and who would be sick all her life, but who'd read the Bible several times through before she was 12. And there was a young teenager when a mob was jeering at a drunkard, a drunkard who was being frog-marched to jail. She went and marched beside him, so he'd know that there was someone that cared. And this little woman stood up in the balcony, and when the General Conference made its pronouncement about William Boo, she said, Never! She walked downstairs and put her arm through Williams and out they left the Methodist connection to establish the Salvation Army. A group that now operates in 72 countries which has been often mobbed, particularly in its early years. Many Salvation Army martyrs all around the world, particularly in non-Protestant lands. But in World War I, they won the hearts of many people 
I think of Big Mac that's known very well in Australia. In World War One, Big Mac was at Gallipoli, about six foot three, very heavily built man. He was the chaplain for the Australians in one section there. In a four-day period, he buried 175 Australians while he lived on three biscuits and a quart of tea. I loved Big Mac. He had insomnia until he died, about 1945, and people that lived with him would hear him mutter as he'd be half asleep and half awake. It's all right, Jim. I'll tell them. It's okay, Bill. I'll kiss them for you. Here, son, have a drink of this. That was Big Mac. And he was typical of the Salvation Army men that were loved and revered in World War I and World War II. But did you know the Salvation Army does not baptise? The Salvation Army never keeps the Lord's Supper? Are there going to be salvos in heaven? Millions of them. Is their theology altogether right? No. Apparently it doesn't take a perfect theology to get a perfect entrance. This talk was requested by Dr. Harold Kruger, a psychiatrist friend of mine in Oklahoma City. And I talked on this subject last Sunday to several ministers and uh, people from a number of churches. He requested that I should speak on why so many denominations and how much truth is essential for salvation. And if you only need a little, why bother for more? You know, the body of Christ at Calvary was divested of a seamless robe. But you know what the body of Christ is now? According to the New Testament, the body of Christ is the name for the church. And it has not a seamless robe, but a robe of many colours. Many, many colours. Why? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it inevitable? They can't all be right. Are people going to be saved from all of them? Probably. Well, how much truth is essential to salvation? And if only so much, why bother for more? The ideal church, according to Ephesians chapter 2, is built on the foundations of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. According to 1 Corinthians 15.3, a first importance to that church is that Christ died for our sins. That's the foundation stone and the doctrinal structure of the ideal church. Christ died for our sins. According to Galatians 1.8, if any other gospel is taught than that, it's cursed of God and is no true gospel at all. An ideal church would make much of what God makes much and make little of what God makes little. You can always tell a cult because it does the opposite. A cult makes a world of an atom and an atom of a world. It strains out an atom and it swallows camels. That's a cult. The great essential of an ideal church is Christ and him crucified. When Christ himself was talking about the church, in Matthew 16, he gave the great doctrines, the heart of the structure of the church. Who do men say that I am? Thou art the Christ. Upon this rock I build my church. And then he said, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross. For one day the Son of Man would come and reward every man according to his works. The Christ, the church, the cross, coming. They're the essentials in any ideal church. Of course, each of them embodies many other things. When you talk about the cross, you must have a doctrine of sin. That requires a doctrine of the law. There's no law, there's no sin. You need no cross. 
So each of those four headings, the Christ, the cross, the church and the coming embodies many others. But they're the essentials. What does it really mean to be a Christian? There are three verses we should never forget from the Apostle Paul who was the great theologian of the church. Jesus gave the seeds of all theology but because the atonement had not been offered he couldn't spell it out in detail. But everything Paul spelled out is found in the teachings of Jesus in seed form. But Paul is the great dogmatician. What does he say about the essential nature of a believer? What effects do these doctrines have upon someone who has eternal life? Well, Galatians 6.15 and Galatians 5.6 say these things. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. In other words, all outward performances in and of themselves are not saving. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Don't boast if you don't do it. Don't boast if you do do it. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But a new creature... Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. This is fundamental. This is the foundation. No one is taken from here to there at the coming of Christ who hasn't become a new creature. That is not negotiable. Now, I read again from Galatians. That was 6.15. Now from 5.6. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But faith which worketh by love. Not faith which shirketh. Faith which worketh. So now he's saying the same thing. Are you a new creature? Here's the evidence. You have primarily the true faith. How do you know the true faith? It works. In what way does it work? I know lots of religious people that work, but they're not very loving people. Ah, says Paul, that's not what I mean. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But faith that worketh by love. And then once more, in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 19, he used the same introduction. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but obedience to the commandments of God, or as some versions have it, the keeping of the commandments of God, is everything. 1 Corinthians 7.19 So these basic statements from Paul tell us the essential characteristics of a Christian. They're first of all faithful. They have faith in Jesus, trust in his merits. That's the root of salvation. It always brings forth fruit of holiness, working by love in obedience but this ideal has never been fully realised the church of all people acting like that and believing like that not even the early church if you read Acts 15 many in the early church wanted to force the Gentiles to be circumcised they hadn't learnt what Paul was later to spell out circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing so in Acts 15 we have a church divided by no means perfect Roy read to us from 1 Corinthians 1 that even the Pauline church had its divisions and they didn't all see the, the primacy of the cross. So again and again Paul has to say to these people at Corinth, look, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1. The Corinthians belonged to, a, to the Greek society. The Greeks were great on knowledge, education, universities, professors, degrees. They're ancient equivalents. Paul says, listen, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Fascinating book that I want to do a review for for the magazine has come out recently called The Intellectuals by Dr. Paul Johnson in which he takes many of the most influential intellectuals the last 200 years and he shows that most of them had a rotten life. And I mean the adjective. They are involved in impurity, adultery, licentiousness, cruelty, theft, murder. 
And he goes right down the line. Sometime we'll put that in the magazine as he details some of the most significant intellectuals of history. You know, the Old Testament and the New have a def- different definition of wisdom to what moderns think of. We need to remember the Bible is a Semitic book and to the Semite wisdom wasn't IQ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And folly wasn't not being able to read. The fool has said in his heart, no God. So as far as the Bible writers are concerned, wisdom is moral, spiritual, ethical, relational. It's not just being able to master a lot of facts and do your sums quickly and rattle off all the books you've just read. That's important. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Beware of knowledge falsely so called, says First Timothy in chapter 6. Beware of knowledge falsely so called. Some versions translate it science. Even the New Testament writers have, a, have different emphases. Acts 15 tells us that in practice, not all the early Christians were agreed. Some wanted to circumcise, some didn't. And even the inspired writers, they don't contradict, they complement. But nevertheless, they do have different emphases. The emphasis in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, is on the Kingdom of God, an expression that's rare in the Fourth Gospel. The emphasis in the Fourth Gospel is eternal life, an expression which is rare in the first three. In Luke's writings, the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit, Acts and Luke. In Paul, it's justification by faith. Not contradictory, complementary, but nevertheless distinct. Different emphases. That's the root of denominationalism. Look with me, please, at John 16. John 16. And verse 12. A very, very significant statement. I have many things to say unto you. There's the infinity of truth. There's no end to truth. When people pretend to know it all, they're pretending to be God. Nobody knows it all. There's nobody that's got it all together. Unless we have plain statements from Scripture, we should remember the warning of Oliver Cromwell. I beseech you by the bowels of Christ, consider you may be mistaken, because none of us are God. As much as true we don't know, as much we think we know that isn't true. That's all of us. There's no difference. Our errors are different, but the fact is not different. I have many things to say unto you. There's the infinity of truth. You know, truth... I used to try and tell my students again and again, truth is polygonal, but we see in a linear fashion. You know the difference. The facets of a diamond, that's like a polygonal arrangement. Many facets. But you can't see all those facets at once. We think in a straight line. So as we fasten on one thing, we don't see what's on the other side. We look at one facet of the diamond, we can miss the other. No one sees it all at once except God. Not us. Not us. I have many things to say to you, the infinity of truth. This is John 16, verse 12. But you cannot bear them now, the the finitude of man. Well, what a problem. Lord, you're telling me you've got a whole lot of stuff for me and that I can't hold it. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Yeah. A deluge of truth and all I've got is a little cup that's got holes in the bottom of it. I can't hold much and what I get I can't hold for long. Prone to wander, prone to forget. Over and over the Bible talks about remembering, remembering, remembering. And I would be so proud if I could learn from my first mistake, but I never do. I have to make the same mistake 20 times, 30 times, 40 times before I begin to budge a little bit. Now one of the Bible says, remember, 
So there's God pouring it out, deluge of truth for every type of mind, every type of heart, every type of culture. We come with our little cup with holes in the bottom. I have many things to say to you. You cannot bear them now. You know, human beings, preachers, preaching has been defined as spouting water over a host of narrow-necked bottles. Only a few drops get in. Whenever I hear Roy, I'm tremendously blessed. And his sermons are very well organised to help you remember. But I confess that five books further on and so many journals further on and so many letters further on, I say, what did Roy preach on last week? Jill can tell me, but I sometimes forget. I have many things to say unto you and ye cannot bear them now. So this is one of the reasons for denominationalism. Truth is polygonal, it's not linear, it has many facets. And one person sees the glory from this point of view and another from that. The Salvation Army came and saw the glory of showing the love of Christ to the most needy and the most wretched. Go for sinners and go for the worst. That was their motto. And God used them and God blessed them. We don't keep the ordinances. There's a reason for that. The 19th century weren't used to women ministers. And in the Salvation Army, the women were ministers as surely as the men, and rightly so. Catherine Booth was a better preacher than her husband. Had a better mind, better writer, better all round. Except he stayed longer on the course. Miraculously. And the reason there were no sacraments was because the 19th century world couldn't stomach the idea of lady ministers. So the Salvation Army said, we've got to make a choice. And they made a practical choice, and God honours them. And yet I find their theology defective. But I find their pragmatics effective and appropriate and right. Acts in chapter 20 tells us that Paul in his farewell to the Ephesian elders said, After my departing, grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul said that soon after he died, apostasy would begin. You've got no idea how bad it is. How dare I insult you like that? The fact is, None of us know how bad it is, including the speaker. But let me give you a hint. I have compiled in an article I used to give my students, the early loss of the Pauline Gospel, quotations from modern scholars pointing out that the gospel of righteousness by faith was lost as soon as the last apostle died. Isn't that unbelievable? If ever you've seen the great books of the early Christian fathers, the Antiochene fathers, huge tomes, you'd need a lifetime pretty well to read them. The gospel's not there. Isn't that amazing? Here I've got quotation after quotation I've put together from learned scholars who've made their lifetime business to go through the writings of the early church. And that's what they say. Here's one. As the struggle with Judaism abated, the simpler and more natural philosophy of salvation through obedience became more and more prominent. They lost salvation by faith alone. They forgot that obedience was fruit. They began to use it as a method. Here's another one. In the patristic age, the great New Testament idea of justification by faith, though not denied outright, was very imperfectly understood. It can hardly be said to have been understood at all. Here's another one. A case could easily be presented in support of the view that the post-apostolic church does not relive the New Testament language. They didn't understand it. There exists in the extant remains of patristic literature, that means the literature of the early church fathers, abundant evidence to show that the doctrine of a free justification by grace through faith in Christ alone was obscured and corrupted at a very early period. That's Buchanan's doctrine of justification. 
page 111. That's represented in many quotes. Just think of it, the gospel was lost that early. Well, don't be amazed, 40 days after Sinai, where they'd heard, thou shalt not make any graven image, the Jews were dancing around a calf. In less than two months. See? Human nature is prone to wander. Don't trust it. Never trust yourself more than you can throw yourself. That's a bit far to trust even that. Never do it. Human nature is very weak. John Milton said, Truth is like a virgin that's been hewn into a thousand pieces and scattered over the globe. And that was true. By the second century, they were bringing in mariolatry, the invocation of saints, uh, Sunday observance, uh, prayers for the dead. All sorts of heresies were flooding the church by the second century. And in the providence of God, ever since, the invisible church has been trying to put together the hewn portions of the slaughtered virgin. And one has found one and another has found another. By 1514, the world had come to a great crisis. A man who saw the depths of the law, realised it demanded absolute love to God and man, who spent six hours making his confession to his father confessor each day. Six hours confessing. His life would have looked immaculate and spotless and perfect. But he was conscious it wasn't filled with love and praise and trust. As a matter of fact, he said, I hate God because he demands that I love, but I have a hateful heart. How can God demand of me what I can't give him? And that phrase, the righteousness of God, I cannot abide it. And then one day in a private time, as he was meditating on Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God under salvation, well, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. For it's written, the just shall live by faith. Suddenly he saw it. He said, the good news. That means good news. It's about something that's happened. About someone else. This righteousness of God means a righteousness from God as a gift. That's the good news. That what I can't earn, what I can't develop, what I have no right to, God gives it to me. The righteousness that comes from God as a gift to all who'll take it. That's what faith is, taking it. And then he swung open the gates of heaven to a medieval world and began the Protestant Reformation. That was the beginning of Lutherism, Lutheranism, Calvinism. Calvin came along. Luther was um, a boxer, a wrestler, a man with a battle axe. Calvin was a builder. Uh, Calvin was the greatest theologian among the early Protestants. He wrote the Institutes, one of the most famous books in the world. And the third of it's about the nature of the church. Now, the Roman Catholics believed that the church was a visible, organized body, to quote one of the popes in 1906, that should, as a docile flock of sheep, follow the directions of the priestly hierarchy. That was the view of the church. But when Calvin came along, he said, not so. He said, the church is an invisible body. It's the church of the twice born. It's the church of the converted. It's the church of all those who've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, to whom the Spirit has come to, to live and dwell. That's the church. Invisible. They drew on texts like other sheep of I, which is not of this flock, and so on. But you know, the reformers didn't have it all together either. In 1531, the theologians at Wittenberg decided it was perfectly appropriate to put the Anabaptists to death. Our doctrine of separation of church and state and liberty and freedom of conscience has only been known in recent centuries. It was not known in the days of Martin Luther. Whether it was Roman Catholic Paris, whether it was Calvinistic Geneva, 
whether it was uh, Zwingli Zurich or whether it was the Episcopalian London, they all burnt heretics. Protestants as well as Catholics. That's why in this country, Catholics fled to Maryland. That was the one place they were safe, in Maryland. Protestants as well as Catholics are persecuted. So some believers, seeing the inadequacies of the Protestant Reformation, decided they'd have to go by the Bible alone, that they couldn't even trust the new church system, and they were known as the Anabaptists, who had a terrible press until my lifetime. I had nothing to do with the reversal, of course. But when I was a student at a university in Michigan, they were just beginning new studies on the Anabaptists, relieving them of the opprobrium and the, and the false accusations that all historians have given them. We now know that while there were fanatics among the Anabaptists who wanted to rape and pillage and be guilty of anarchy, and whom Luther said, cut them down, destroy them, most of them were very Bible-oriented and said, look, the Bible teaches adult baptism or believer's baptism. He that believeth and is baptized. This business of being born a Christian is just not scriptural. This business of baptizing a baby with water, that doesn't commemorate the burial of Christ and his resurrection. I told you to bury a horse and you sprinkled its forehead with a few grains of dirt, I wouldn't think you'd done a good job. And the Anabaptists protested. Anabaptist means baptize again. They didn't like that title because they said the first one wasn't a baptism. And the Anabaptists were slaughtered, right, left and centre, by Protestants and Catholics. But they were the precursors of the Puritans in England. The Puritans said that when Henry VIII broke away from Rome so he could marry again, he chose a time when many theologians in the Roman Church wanted to separate on biblical grounds. But the Puritans said, you're still too much like the church from which you came out of. We want a pure system of worship. It was about 1602 that... uh, a very famous book was written on the principles of separation, which was the foundation of what we know as congregationalism and separatism and independency, which led to the vast majority of non-state churches as we now know them around the world. It's interesting, um, Bernard Ram, a Baptist, in a very famous article a few years ago said this, Among New Testament students, a remarkable change has taken place in this century. The views of the simple believers, formerly scorned as fanatics concerning the practice of baptism, are now generally regarded by New Testament interpreters as established. There's hardly a major commentary on the New Testament text that gives support to the mode of Christian initiation practiced in our midst. So it's interesting that this century the Baptists have been vindicated. It is now widely recognized by Baptists and non-Baptists. The Bible only teaches baptism by immersion. That's all that teaches. People can make an argument the other way, but the argument's not good enough. You know, the devil can quote scripture. It is written, he said. Jesus said it's written again. You need to know all the agains of scripture. So the Baptists and the Anabaptists have been vindicated. But uh, there was a danger in teaching justification by faith that some people might use it as an excuse to indulge their lusts. That's not possible for persons born again, but it is possible if they're not. So Wesley was raised up of God to teach holiness of life. They were called Methodists because he was so precise about everything. He had method for everything. You should read his diary about what he did this half hour, what he did the next half hour. Oh, he had everything down to a T. But Methodism was raised up to stress that true justification by faith always resulted in a holy life. And God blessed that. Uh, The Wesleyan Revolution saved England from something like the French Revolution, according to historians. Well, the years went by. The Methodists became respectable. Philosophy began to convert theology. 
And the idea was prominent in uh, the theology of the 19th century of the inevitability of progress. That the world was going to get better and better until there'd be a millennium of peace on earth and then Jesus would come back after that thousand years of peace. Everyone's going to learn to read. Crime would be abolished. There'd be no more war. There'd be no hunger. There'd be no hatred. Everything would be perfect. That's what philosophy taught. The church has caught it. I have books at home 200 years old. I have the great commentaries that were used in the early part of the 19th century by Scott, by Matthew Henry, by Adam Clark, by Bishop Barnes. And they all taught what unbelieving philosophy taught. The world's going to get better and better. Even though the plain words of scripture said things would get, evildoers would wax worse and worse. And so God raised up a Baptist by the name of William Miller to preach what the Bible taught. Not in the numbers to which he finally capitulated in error, because the Bible forbids that, but the truth that the world would get better and better and we should as healthy Christians expect the second coming of Christ and live for it. He was right. Today the whole world, including Roman Catholics, have climbed on that bandwagon. It's very difficult to find a post-millennialist today in the church. They exist, but they're rare. Someone that thinks the world's going to get better and better and Christ will come after the world's been perfect for a thousand years. That's post-millennialism. Very hard to find one today. The world has climbed on that Adventist bandwagon. By Adventist, I'm referring to the early people, Baptists, Anglicans, Methodists, who taught what the New Testament taught, that the world would get worse, not better, and that every Christian should expect the coming of Christ because it's something that doesn't have to be delayed. If the gospel's taken hold of, God can make a speedy finish to the work. About the same time, 1844, Darwin wrote his first sketch of The Origin of Species, the most devastating book the Christian world has been exposed to for centuries. Darwin's book seemed to render null and void the first three chapters of Genesis and Christians decided, some, many of them, well, if you can't trust the first three chapters, you can't trust any of it. It wasn't for years that some of them decided that it may be that the, the Old Testament, like the New, sometimes used figures and, that were to be interpreted uh, not literally, the first reaction to Darwin was, well, the Bible is false. But the same year, Seventh-day Baptists revived through Seventh-day Adventists the truth of the Sabbath. And today there are a hundred Sabbath-keeping bodies, more than a hundred Sabbath-keeping bodies in this country alone. Most of them very small. I have a directory of Sabbath-keeping groups that's that thick. Hundreds of pages. I speak myself for Seventh-day Baptists, Church of God, Seventh-day, Seventh-day Adventist groups not usually in their churches, and uh, happily wherever the Sabbath is proclaimed. Because in the providence of God, the memento of creation, the memorial of creation, was revived in the same year that Darwin wrote his first sketch of the origin of species. And then there was a man called George Storrs. George Storrs said, look, for hundreds of years we've taught something that isn't so. We've taught that when the dead die, they're not dead. And we have nullified what the New Testament says about the resurrection. And we've cancelled out what the New Testament says about a judgment at the end. We've made the judgment at death. And he said we've gotten rid of the second coming by saying we go to him. He doesn't have to come to us. This was George Storrs. And most religionists who have started new groups since that date have accepted this truth of life only in Christ just as there's righteousness only in Christ. Now in practical experience it amounts about the same thing. If I have a Baptist friend that believes that at death their friend goes straight to heaven, the believer in the New Testament picture that they sleep till the resurrection, in practice it works pretty much the same because you're not conscious of sleep. So a person that goes to sleep at death and is resurrected has no consciousness of the time between, so it is 
death and glory at the coming of Jesus. Practically. But why bother if that's so? Because this false teaching, this false teaching of the immortality of the soul, and it is false. You know, the Bible uses soul and spirit 1,642 times in, the, in Scripture. The Hebrew and Greek terms like nephesh and psyche, they're, they're there, 1,642 times. But not once does the Bible ever say that a soul or spirit can function consciously without a body. Not once. I have replies at home in my files from ministers I've written to in this country whom I respect. Saying to them, I very much appreciate your programs. You've been a blessing to me. But I have one problem. You often speak about going to heaven at death or to hell at death. Would you give me one text, please? One text that uses soul or spirit that says soul or spirit can function consciously without a body. And I have their replies, but no text. Gracious, good letters, but no text. Because there isn't one. Why is it important? Because to understand this truth cuts out the roots of mariolatry. You know what I mean by mariolatry? Most people bearing the name of Christian worship Mary. Catholicism is a much bigger body of Christians than any Protestant group by far. And many wonderful Christians among them. Let's remember when you sing the songs of Bernard of Claveau, when you talk of Francis of Assisi or, Francis, or, or Xavier, these men were Roman Catholics, converted men who loved Jesus Christ, who will certainly be in the kingdom of God. You can't read the hymns of St. Bernard of Claveau without knowing he loved Christ. God has a big family, bigger than we suspected. See? But if you hold the wrong view on the nature of man, Mariolatry is a temptation to you. Invocation of saints is a temptation to you. That teaching that's a scandal, that God's not going to solve the sin problem, all he's going to do is segregate it. That's a scandal on God, that God and the saints are going to sing hallelujahs, or the saints will sing hallelujahs, while the vast majority of God's creatures will be in anguish forever and ever. The Bible does not teach it, dear friends. The Bible does talk about everlasting fire, the same everlasting fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They're not burning still. There's fire that's everlasting in its effects. Unquenchable fire. No man can put it out till its work is done. The fire that cleanses the old earth as God's about to make a new one. Why is it important? It destroys the New Age heresy if you believe the truth in the New Testament. The New Age teaches karma and reincarnation. It doesn't matter if you mess up this life. You've got as many more as you want. As soon as you die, you go into another body. You can't believe such things, dear friends. You understand the Bible teaching. So the Bible teaching wipes out spiritism, the new age, mariolatry, the invocation of saints, that terrible doctrine that has frustrated missionary endeavour for centuries. You know, when Christians have taken the gospel to Africa and to India and to Asia, the Asians say, our God's better than yours. Our gods don't persecute people forever and ever. Don't punish them infinitely for a finite sin. Our God's better than yours. So this truth is very important and has a practical bearing on the way you and I live. Because we have come to see that if it is true that the body is not a sack of dung that holds a precious jewel, you know, the medieval people said, don't know what you do to the body, it's the soul that counts. You can flagellate, whip yourself, starve yourself, work yourself to death, doesn't matter. You've got a soul that's not touched by that. Ah, when you find the truth that you're not a body plus soul, but you're a body soul, and that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, that makes this body sacred. You can't live as you like. 
He that destroys the temple of God, him will God destroy. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We belong to him. He dwells in us. The body is sacred. Christ took a body. That makes a difference the way we live. None of us were born temperate. Very, very practical, is it not? Well, how much truth is essential for salvation? Let me remind you of some well-known text. Then he shall say to those on his right, Come ye blessed of my Father, I was hungry and you fed me, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was naked and you clothed me, I was in prison and you visited me, I was sick and you came unto me. Inasmuch you've done it under one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. How much did he ask them about theology? Nothing. I think of the several texts in the New Testament where Jesus takes little children and he says, Of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, how much can you teach a little child about uh, predestination, hermeneutics, incarnation, and a thousand other theological topics? He says, these are the kingdom of heaven. I think of 1 John 3.14. By this we know we pass from death unto life because we recite the creed. No, because we love the brethren. You don't need a lot of theology for that. I think of 1 John 4.7. He that loveth is born of God. Whoever loveth. I think of 3 John 11. He that doeth good is of God. Why bother about the rest of them? Because it can make us more fruitful and it can save the world from a lot of pain. We do need to know every word that God has said, though we don't need it all for salvation. We need it all to be fruitful. We need it all to avoid terrible perils. I think of the popular theology in America today of name it, claim it and frame it. You imagine teaching that horrible heresy in Pakistan or Ethiopia. Oh, you poor Ethiopians who are starving to death. All you've got to do is fix your mind on a Rolls Royce arriving tomorrow, Mercedes Benz, loaded with food and good things. Name it, claim it and frame it. How well would that go down in Pakistan, in Ethiopia, in Manila, in the Philippines? No, if it won't go down well all around the world, it's not a world gospel, is it? Not a world gospel. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that sort of thing. It says we must through much tribulation into the kingdom of God. It says the saints like Paul may, may have a thorn in the flesh. You can say, Tychicus, I've left in my lead, I'm sick. And Epaphroditus, the work of God, is nigh unto death. And Timothy, the typical young minister, your many infirmities. I love that text because it reminds me that the minister's life is very perilous if he's conscientious. If he's not, it's not perilous. But if he's conscientious, it's a suicide mission, unless he learns. Timothy, you've got many infirmities. And Paul doesn't promise to strike his hand over the spot and heal him. He says, look, try some medicinal wine for your stomach's sake, not his palate's sake, for your stomach's sake. See? And this is what you ought to do, this is how to live. So the body's holy and our habits matter. Very important. Do we know the names of some that uh, will ultimately be saved? Oh, yes, we do. There's a whole chapter of them. Which chapter? Hebrews 11. There's a list of all sorts of names of people. We know they're going to be saved. How much did they know? You know, it says in 2 Timothy 1.10, Christ brought immortality to light. Before that, it wasn't brought to light. There are a few texts, Daniel 12, 2 and 3, the passage in Isaiah, Job 14. There are a few, but there are not many in the Old Testament. Christ brought immortality to light. The mystery which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as is now made known, he says in Romans 16 Ephesians 3. How much did they know? Hebrews 11 gives a list of men that are saved. Did they know everything? No. 
Were they absolutely committed to what they did know? Yes. Yes. For except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's the indispensable, non-negotiable for salvation. Change by contact with God. Brings forth holy living. No, they didn't know everything, but they were fully committed to the God they'd come to know. And that brought salvation. Abraham by faith obeyed. He left Ur of the Chaldees. He's told to go to Egypt in the time of famine. He obeyed. He's told to offer up Isaac, the child of promise. He was ready to obey. Isaac by faith was willing to die. Steadies his father's nerveless fingers. He holds the knife. Bears his bosom. Why am I interested in Abraham and Isaac? Because Jesus said, the day will come when you'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And many will come from the east and the west and sit down with them. There's going to be a lot saved who didn't know it all. I'm glad of that because I'm one that doesn't know it all. So I'm glad of that. Jacob, he could cling to God in his weakness. So I won't let you go unless you bless me. We know they're going to be saved. You think Abraham could have explained 666 and the mark of the beast? I doubt it. You think Isaac knew who the woman was on seven hills? I doubt it. You think that Jacob could have spelled out all the implications in immortality, resurrection, judgment, justification by faith, inaugurated eschatology, consummated eschatology, hermeneutics? I doubt it. But we know he's going to be saved. He didn't know a lot, but he was fully committed to the God of the lot. And now I leave with you finally, the greatest thief who ever lived. The greatest thief who ever lived. He represents all of us. He wasn't content with the piggy bank. He stole heaven. You remember. Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. Now please note, he was never baptized. Please note, he didn't keep the Lord's Supper. Please note, the only Bible he knew was the little Bible above the head of Christ with half a dozen words. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We know he's going to be saved. I say unto you today, you'll be with me in paradise. We know this man's got eternal life. No baptism, no Lord's Supper. He couldn't recite a creed, I'm sure. Converted by the little Bible and the living incarnate Bible, Christ Jesus. Had the greatest faith of anyone in the world to believe this crucified, rejected, shamed, naked man was God who had a kingdom. What faith? What faith? He was holy gods. He was holy gods. That's what it takes to be saved, to be holy gods. Holy gods. That's what it takes. Denominations are inevitable because truth is infinite, many faceted, and we all see in a linear fashion. So one sees the glory from here and one the glory from there. And as the ages pass, we all stand on the shoulders of our predecessors. So for the most part, more recent denominations come out accepting baptism by immersion, accepting life only in Christ, accepting separation of church and state, accepting the need for holy living as the fruit of justification by faith. So we all stand on the shoulders of our predecessors, but we're not saved because of that. We're saved because we're holy gods. That's the fruit of the faith that takes hold of the gift of eternal life. And therefore, what shall our attitude be to people of other faiths? Augustine summarised it. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity.
Thank you, Dr. Ford.